0: Is more than the policeman on the corner, more than the courthouse where our laws are enforced, more than the jail where lawbreakers are punished. In your whole community, there are
1: customs and moral codes which guide your actions. What social controls affect you? I sat down and I started reading what is the Hague Convention, and I realized, oh wow, okay. I needed to find an attorney, not just a divorce attorney, but I didn't know how to do this. This is Life of the Law.
0: I'm Nancy Mullane. It's always an adventure taking the kids on a trip outside the U.S. to London, Madrid, Istanbul. But what happens if one parent takes the kids and then doesn't come back? It's against the law, right? And what's the parent left behind supposed to do to get their kids back? Who enforces laws that cross international borders? What if the parent had a reason for abducting their own children? Jillian Weinberger has the story.
2: Jane Smith was finally a doctor. She had just finished her medical residency when she met him
1: was a time in my life when I for the first time didn't have the commitment of school and training and my board examination was just behind me and wow, all of a sudden I could do things like have a vacation <laughs> and so the relationship started at a time where there was some degree of magic that was possible So meeting a friend of a friend and then having that wonderful person that I met say, hey, meet me next weekend in Paris. (laughs) That was possible.
2: They met in Chicago, where he was traveling on business, but he lived in what was then East Berlin. This was a time when
1: the wall was coming down and that area was full of promise and wonder. And, you know, some of it was scary, but some of it was so cool.
2: After a two-year transatlantic romance, they married. Smith left a job she loved, Chicago, a city she'd come to call home, and joined her husband in East Berlin, where she soon discovered a disturbing side of her new partner's personality.
1: There were a couple of sort of watershed moments. You know, some discussions where we had, you know, he was saying, oh, you mean— I said I owned the business, or I said, no, I didn't have other girlfriends, or I said that, you know, that's just stuff people say. You know, Jane, that's really, that's just what people do. That wasn't real.
2: Out of concern for her safety, Smith asked us to use her maiden name. My
1: maiden name was Jane Smith. No one's going to believe that, but it really is.
2: (laughs) According to Smith's version of events, the day after she gave birth to her younger son, she came home to find her husband with another woman and he became enraged.
1: You know, being thrown up against the door jamb by my arm and slamming me into the door jamb that breaks my teeth and messes up my face, that was a surprise to me. But you know what? It was not the first time. I can't tell you how many times. It was probably the sixth where something ended up being bruised on the side of my face. That day was the first time when I had one kid in each arm. I had my 3-day old and I had my 3-year-old and I was standing there and literally my face hit the door jam because I didn't want the kids to hit it. <laughs> and I'm like holding them out of the way, right? And I just I thought I I can't do anything anymore. This is it. I'm maxed out. My arms are full, my face is messed up. That that I, this is done.
2: Smith decided to leave. I made my way out of there
1: with a car seat, my car. I didn't have any co-text or sanitary pads. I don't know if, you know, postpartum women can relate, but that is just seriously not a good thing. I also did not have diapers for my kids. And I drove first across what was the old border to the west and spent the night with some very distant relatives, and then from there went to Copenhagen as
2: soon as sunrise hit. From Copenhagen, Smith traveled to the state of Washington to stay with her parents. Six weeks later, after she had found a new position teaching in a hospital and daycare for her sons, she received a package in the mail from the U.S. State Department her husband was accusing her of child abduction, of kidnapping their two sons across international lines. He had filed what's called a Hague Convention application. I sat down and I started
1: reading what is the Hague Convention, and I realized, oh, wow, okay, this was something really huge, and I needed to find, I needed to find an attorney, not just a divorce attorney,
2: It's called the Hague Convention on Civil Aspects of International Child Abduction, but most lawyers just call it the Hague Convention. It's an international treaty that lays out the rules for what federal officials are supposed to do when one parent takes a child away from the other parent without their permission across international borders. The U.S. worked with other international parties to draft the treaty in 1980. Every country that signs on to the Hague Convention has to create its own legislation to implement the treaty, to determine how the cases are going to be handled, by whom, and where. The U.S. House of Representatives passed the American legislation, known as the International Child Abduction Remedies Act, in 1988. Now a senator, Benjamin Cardin was a House representative when the debate was taking place. What the purpose of the convention was all about, Mr. Speaker, was to remove any reward For kidnapping or taking a child to another country, it does not seek to settle the dispute about legal custodial rights. And I think that's very important, Mr. Speaker, for me to emphasize that point. The purpose of the convention is not to settle disputes, but to return to the status quo, to remove the incentive to abduct a child. While most kids are warned to be wary of strangers, surprisingly, the vast majority of children are abducted by family
3: members. Historically, there have been many cases where children were being taken across international borders, you know, generally by a father on vacation, and they were not being brought back. That's Suda Shetty. She's an assistant
2: dean at UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy and an expert on the Hague
3: Convention. Suddenly, there was this whole issue around what is the protocol for bringing a child back,
2: The international treaty was created with the belief that abduction hurts children, that uprooting a child from his or her home can have devastating, long-lasting consequences. In Hague Convention cases, judges are instructed to send the child, or children, in Jane's case, back to their home country, to the parent left behind. When the Hague Convention was ratified, it was generally assumed that fathers would be the ones taking the children, and mothers would be the ones left behind. At that time, mothers were usually the custodial parent in divorce cases. According to the 1990 U.S. Census, judges awarded custody to mothers more than 80% of the time. And when Congress considered the treaty, Shetty says that most of the testimony lawmakers heard was from left behind mothers, women whose ex-husbands had abducted their children across international boundaries, women who were trying to get their children
3: back. So this is not strange abduction. This is familial abduction. At the time when the treaty was created, it was mostly fathers who were taking children across the borders. But today, more
2: than a quarter of a century after the U.S. signed on to the Hague convention, the reality of who is doing the kidnapping and who wants their children back has shifted. In 2010, Shetty and her husband, Jeffrey Edelson, dean of the School of Social Welfare at UC Berkeley, conducted a study of Hague Convention cases in U.S. courts. What they discovered was that more than 60% of the taking parents, the abductors, were women. And most of them were victims of domestic violence. Smith was one of those women.
1: When you get served with the Hague Convention Papers, because it's between countries, um, you need to decide first where the jurisdiction is going to be for the settlement. Where, where is the actual legal discussion going to happen? And so that was
2: the first time that we went to court. The case was heard in King County Superior Court in Washington State. And Smith says she was surprised when her soon-to-be ex-husband appeared at the trial.
1: Gosh, when he came, no one really expected him to be there. But he walked in, you know, tanned and a new suit. And the next thing that happened was there were two police officers that came in that had obviously been requested by him. And I thought at first it was like, who was protecting who from what? And the police officers had been brought in the room because he requested them, because he was afraid of my parents, is what was told to the court, that my parents would be angry at him or something, which was silly because they're elderly.
2: Cases involving families, divorce, custody, and Hague cases often come down to credibility. Whom should the judge believe? Smith's case was no exception
1: my ex's attorney was standing there and holding a finger pointing across the courtroom at me and saying, you know, I'm not sure if she's even a doctor because she's not a member of the AMA. And I'm sitting there and I'm really tearful and feeling down and humiliated, but I'm, I'm looking up at this thing and this piece of testimony that's supposed to disqualify me, you know, my credibility and stuff because I'm not part of the AMA. Like most American physicians aren't. And so it was just, it was like Twilight Zone testimony. My credibility as a mom, my credibility as a doctor, as a daughter, all this stuff was really,
2: it was pretty out there. But Hague cases are different from more routine custody cases. In most states, custody cases are decided in the best interest of the child. But in Hague cases, kids are supposed to be sent back, with very few exceptions. One key exception is if returning the child would put him or her at, quote, grave risk of physical or psychological harm. Edelson, who co-authored the study with Shetty, says judges don't always understand the dynamics of domestic violence and how it affects children.
3: The surprising finding for us is if there was evidence that the child was directly abused, generally American judges would not send the children back to the other country. But If the children were not abused, but their mothers were abused, in 8 out of 10 cases, the kids were sent back to the abusive father.
2: Since Hague cases can be filed in almost any court, family court, federal court, Shetty says not all judges have had experience hearing cases involving charges of domestic violence.
3: We've got over 31,000 judges in the country, and the judges rotate off our courts. So here we might train a judge, or a judge might have taken training on understanding domestic violence issues and understanding the field of domestic violence and and its impact on children, and thus thereby the impact around custody. That judge might be moved off the court. And so then we have a totally
2: new judge on the bench. Judge Larry Jordan of the Washington Superior Court was assigned to hear Smith's Hague Convention case. Now retired from the bench, Judge Jordan says that even though he and Smith haven't spoken since the trial in 1998, he remembers the case well.
3: She found that she was involved in a situation of domestic violence. That was her testimony.
2: It helped that, unlike many judges in Shetty and Edelson's study, Judge Jordan had made an effort to understand the complexities of cases involving domestic violence.
3: Went to seminars. Um, I've had cases. Judges often have that kind of ego, I will, I will say. But uh, I, I, at least I, I was knowledgeable uh, about the area. And uh, so when I heard the testimony and I saw the witnesses, uh, the credibility decision was not that difficult.
2: Judge Jordan eventually ruled in Smith's favor. But when Smith's Hague Convention case landed on his desk, he had never heard one before. And while he feels he made the right decision in Smith's case— He says hate convention cases are particularly tough for judges.
3: Generally speaking, uh, in law school, most of us uh, in my day uh, didn't take international law. In addition, you don't see very many. Uh, So you don't have not only the training and education, but you don't have the experience.
2: And many judges are in the same situation, which is why some countries, like England and Australia, have judges and attorneys dedicated to hear hate convention cases. It's something the U.S. might want to consider, because it's likely that the Hague caseload will keep growing, and the United States has more international abductions than any other country that signed on to the Hague Convention. Today, 93 countries, or about half of all nations, have signed on to the Hague Convention. Japan is one of the most recent nations to adopt the Convention, And Shetty and Edelson have spent a lot of time there helping Japanese lawmakers craft their Hague Convention law to ensure that the law allows judges to consider the psychological risk children face if one parent is subjected to violence by the other. American legislation still has no exception for domestic violence victims. With the Hague Convention, the law specifically directs judges to send abducted children back, with very few exceptions. Smith was lucky enough to have an understanding judge, one schooled in the realities of domestic violence. Not all judges are trained to think outside of the box. As for Smith, today, she lives just outside of Seattle. One of her sons is in college, the other is in high school, and they're both doing well, and so is she.
1: I love being a physician, I love teaching. I've participated in an NIH-sponsored grant that has five years of studying domestic violence, the long-term health care effects of domestic violence, and co-authored that. And I'm doing well. I'm 16 years not married, and, and I'm fine with that. But meanwhile, I've, you know, become comfortable in my own skin, living in a community where I think I'm the only single parent that shows up on the,
2: you know, lacrosse team list or the
1: soccer team list.
2: In the years since the trial, Smith says she has seen her ex-husband just once. She flew to Berlin last summer and met him in a very public place for dinner.
1: We spent five or six hours together just over dinner. A lot of it was sort of looking at each other and, For me, I looked at him and I said, he looks like his sons. There there were no promises made that night, but neither one of us was angry.
2: For Life of the Law, I'm Jillian Weinberger. This episode of Life of the Law was edited
0: by Elisa Roth, with sound direction and production by Caitlin Prest. Matthew Dar, Kyle Kaplan, and Todd McDonald composed our music. Life of the Law is a project of the Tide Center and is part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Check out some of our other programs like A Tiny Sense of Accomplishment with Sherman Alexie and Jess Walter. Go to infiniteguest.org. Distribution of Life of the Law on radio is made possible by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. And Life of the Law is funded by you, our listeners, and by the Open Society Foundations. For more on this story and others on the law and the legal system, to subscribe to our podcast or to make an individual donation, visit lifeofthelaw.org. I'm Nancy Mullane.